Hello, everyone. I'm Kamran. And I'm Billy. Welcome to the Horse Frog Podcast, home of the ever-burgeoning Horse Frogopedia. Would you consider things like the Glenn Close effect and the Hauer effect part of the Horse Frogopedia? I do. That, along with termigate and mellophobe. <laughs> okay, we've adopted those. Okay. Yes. Yeah, I think so. All right, so. nice. Okay. Cool. <laughs> Today we'll be discussing Book 2, Chapter 6 of Gardens of the Moon, a novel in the Malazan Book of the Fallen. This podcast series is intended to be a companion to reading or listening to the books set in the Malazan universe. This is not a book review, and it's not intended to be a replacement to reading the books. Just know that Comron and I think this is the greatest fantasy story ever written. Period. Yes. We're not providing literary critique. Agreed. <laughs> this is amazing. And if <laughs> you need to join, you need to listen. <laughs> mm-hmm. We'll be covering the events of the books in a linear fashion. There will be spoilers for those that have not read the books. We will try not to spoil anything prior to us covering that portion of the respective book. And a quick warning. Today's episode will contain descriptions of violence, and it's not intended for children. Is there any violence today? I'm trying to remember. There, there, it's, there's some implications. There's some implications of, of violence. violence. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> or threats of violence that are very troubling yeah. if you know what's okay. going on. Okay, yeah. <laughs> All right. Chapter 6. The chapter opens with a fragment of a poem entitled Cabal. There is a cabal breathing deeper than the bellows drawing up the emerald fires beneath rain-glistened cobbles. While you may hear the groaning from the caverns below, the whisper of sorcery is less than the dying sigh of a thief stumbling unwilling into Darujistan's secret web. Wow. Talk about foreshadowing. Is that foreshadowing or was that actually afterwards? Because that was what last episode was about, wasn't it? I am having difficulty reconciling this with the story, so you're going to have to help me out. It's not foreshadowing. It's like, I mean, that was what happened last That was the last week on. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Last week on the, the Malazan Brotherhood. This happened, right? What are we talking about in terms of the... The thief stumbling unwilling into Registan's secret web. Dude, this is blowing my mind. I'm so bad at... You're like me. I hate, I usually hate poetry, but I like I this do. stuff. I do, yeah. I don't know if that's if that's kind of what happened last week a little bit. I, I just caught caught on the thief stumbling into Registan's secret web. Because I, I think of the cabal. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> I, so I kind of feel... It's, he technically didn't stumble into it, though. Crocus is still kind of... Doesn't even know what's going on here, so stumbling upon this may not be what I'm thinking. I just may have been reading into it. Okay, yeah, I'm I'm yeah. having trouble following along or helping yeah. in any way here. I apologize. It's all right, dude. Like I say, I, I I like you usually have a kind of a disdain for poetry. <laughs> sure, I don't mean to be that way. It's just I, I mean, I is that, I mean I'm sorry. It's just let's be real. I just that's kind of how I feel. But I really like I love Erickson's stuff a lot. Maybe as I'm getting older, maybe I'm just appreciating it more. That could be part of it as well. Some of the poems I do like. This one right here I'm having difficulty with because I'm not getting specifically what's going on. I think it's mostly just a hint of what's going to be happening in this whole – because, I mean, in a way it kind of – remember this guy, we've always agreed, I think, a lot. that He's a lot like Herbert. It's always his stuff at the beginning of the chapter. You're looking for some kind of connection. Mm, okay. I was, you know, to each chapter, and I'm looking for that here, and I feel it kind of does point to this chapter a lot. There's some big negotiations at the, yes. toward the end, so <laughs> big things are moving around in this. I love this. I love this chapter, even though it doesn't seem like there's a lot happening. There's a lot happening here. Oh, this is a dense chapter. <laughs> it's a yeah, very dense it chapter. may seem like a short couple of scenes, but overall, I actually like this one more than the last one. Oh, me too. The last one was very action-packed, but the, the characters introduced in this one, I think, are more critical. It's one of my favorites. Well, we have, yeah. we have two of my favorites. Okay, never mind. We'll, let's let's, let's, let's get into it. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about it as we get to them. Yeah, okay. <laughs> 
We are introduced to the great raven named Crone as she flies from moon spawn at the behest of her lord. Crone is heading to Darujistan. As she flies, we learn that these great ravens are not regular birds. They are sentient and communicate with each other. Some call to her, asking if they fly. Crone ignores their calls as she is focused on her mission. It's mentioned that she has no time for the younglings, <laughs> no time for answering their simplistic needs with the wisdom her thousands of years of life had earned her. Now, any mention of younglings immediately oh. goes to episode three, oh, is it? Oh, oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I should have spotted that better because I just went through that stuff yeah. here recently. Yeah, so I, I get derailed. Hey, I finally finished it, by the way. Okay. That's okay. <laughs> It was good. I, I enjoyed it. I'm sorry. It was entertaining. I was entertained. Okay, good. You know, that's all I require anymore as I've become rather simplistic in my entertainment <laughs> media. If I was entertained for a couple hours, like I was entertained. It was all right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the Star Wars reference aside, the fact that Crone is thousands of years old mm -hmm. is also pretty cool. It is. Mm -hmm. We've hinted at in past episodes about the age of some of these people, and it's not like... A lot of the fantasy where you read somebody maybe two or three thousand years old and they're like really weary of life. <laughs> it's like, those guys are kids compared to mm -hmm. some of these people in these books. It's like dude, they're not even kids. Mm -hmm. They're barely a glint in their eye. It's like they don't even see us. They they can't look at us unless they take their time to look at us because we just disappear so quick. Yeah, that's crazy. The scale. Yeah, it is. Yeah, mind blowing. Mind blowing in this in this epic. Crone is flying over the featureless expanse of the Dwelling Plane and can see the sapphire glow of Darujistan in the distance. The Dwelling Plane is south of the Gadrobi foothills, which are also south of Darujistan. So she's flying north. Yeah. Okay. As she is nearing her location, she sees the aquamarine emanation of sorcery. Quote, magic was ambrosia to great ravens. They were drawn to it by the scent of blood and power. And within its aura, their lifespans lengthened in centuries. Its musk had other effects as well. End quote. I'm sorry. I just, all I could think about is the Baron Harkonnen. I don't know why I think of the old, the, did you ever see the original Dune by David Lynch? Mm -hmm. Of course. <laughs> I think of the creepy Baron in that. I don't know why the musk had other effects as well. Oh, jeez. It's like, it's like, it's like, <laughs> spice. Sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I apologize for that major digression. Oh, man. I'm having bad imagery <laughs> of that character right now. I have nothing but uncomfortable imagery from that one in particular. Did you prefer is... him or the Stellan Skarsgård version? Dude, I, I, I love the new Dune. I, I ha There's no doubt that I love this Dune. But did you ever uh -huh. see the sci-fi miniseries? No. That was actually quite well done and quite, quite accurate. It covers the first trilogy. The first movie is just do the first thing is do now. It's kind of flat because it's TV. Right. I'm not going to say it's great, but it's great to see it brought to life completely. Mm -hmm. So it covers everything pretty well up into I mean all to that crazy possession stuff with Alia and the Baron. Oh man, that's some insane mm -hmm. stuff. It's great. But the original one, I that I love that Baron Harkonnen. He's out of his mind. That's kind of who I can't. I always think of that guy from David Lynch's Dune because it's so much more creepier. Talking about sweaty white man. Sweaty white man. The embodiment the diseases. of it. He's got the, and the guy's like, your diseases are love to me, my lord. And it's like, but, you know, that with the pick, you know, it's all that gross. It's such mm -hmm. a, it's such a body horror scene. And, but it's like, he's paid to be that way. He's got so much money. He has nothing better. But then you find out that's not the case at all. You know, of course we find out that he is just really sick and that's, 
everything that's been done to him, you're like, oh, he's disgusting, sweaty white. Yeah, it's, it's, that's, a, that's a sweaty white guy scene. Anytime he enters it, it's like I feel very uncomfortable in that original thing. Yeah. <laughs> that he was given that disease by uh, the Morheim. Yeah. Was her name Morheim? Or what, what? It was Jessica's old uh yeah mo yeah helena moham moham yeah, moham or yeah. yeah the is the bene Gesserit that comes to see jessica on it's the grandmother dude it's it's actually yeah. paul's grandmother right yeah yeah okay so, we are way let's sorry. let's reel it back wow <laughs> you get sorry folks <laughs> Another great series, Dune, folks. Listen to Dune. Yeah, so. we're gonna get there eventually. I think. I think we're gonna. Yeah. Maybe do that one after this. Okay. In uh, six years, five yeah. days, and <laughs> counting. <Whatever. Yeah>. Oh, <laughs> All right. Counting. Move along, sir. That was great. Sorry about it. <laughs> Crone finds her target since her lord had imparted to her a thorough description of the magical signature she must find. There is mention that there is a profusion of protective sorcery around this location. I thought it was cool that she's seeing the sorcery as oh, yeah. aquamarine emanations. That was kind of neat. I love when they introduce every new race, and I would consider the Great Ravens a race. A species race, yeah. A species. I mean, that, that they are, they're not super active, but they are important oh, yeah. kind of players. So, I mean... They're, I don't know if you could, well, yeah, they're everything, I mean, but they're they're intriguing. And so I like the introduction to Sarah. Well, we have a couple of introductions here. We have like three introductions that I love, mm -hmm. if not four. We cut to a very in-depth description of the area from the Gadrobi <laughs> District's Harbor up to the fourth and highest tier of the city, ultimately to end up at the gate leading to a park near High Gallows Hill. The gate is is named Despot's Barbican and leads into the park. Now, just a quick aside, folks, you will be learning a bunch of throwaway technology terms for building features. It's okay. We love Erickson for his description. He has the best description of all, but he does. I had to learn some things. <laughs> yeah, like, that's what's helpful about reading what? it on Kindle is you can absolutely <laughs> highlight the word and look it up immediately. And just to add a little context from his perspective, he feels that sci-fi and high fantasy are harder to write for because when you write something in the real world at a location that is known, you have to describe it less. But in this world, he has to describe everything because yeah. otherwise you have nothing to compare it to. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. So he wow. said that in one of his interviews. So I see that perspective. So that's a lot of why he goes into so much description of the environment or the buildings and the cities is be to paint the picture in your mind. And I get it too, because this is one of the very few places capture my worlds in particular, capture my imagination because a lot of them kind of run together. Fantasy worlds, let's just be honest. <laughs> Some of them kind of in, in certain parts can kind of lean on each other, but he, his is so, I don't know. It's just so much more in the in-depthness of it is it, it does add a lot to me. And I agree with what you just said. It's like, that explains a lot too. Mm -hmm. I, yeah. I, it's like, and I've enjoyed each re I, I like, again, every time we reread it, it's like, wow, I, I get a better picture each time. Yeah. And now that I'm reading into it more, it's uh, definitely bringing more out as well. Yeah. Yeah. Despot's Barbican is the last remaining remnant of the castle that once commanded Majesty Hill. It is mentioned that the days of kings have long since ended in Daruzhistan. We are introduced to a city watch guard and a councilman, Turban Orr, who is clandestinely meeting another individual in the dead hour of the night. 
He has met people here many times over the past year. The guard notes that Turban Orr appears to pay him little, if any, attention, even though he is here every time Orr comes here. Orr appears to be an impatient man. He's foppishly dressed. His hand rests upon his dueling sword, the index finger tapping in time with the boot clicks on the pommel of his sword. It's revealed that the guard has had duty on this beat for six years and knows Despot's Barbican well, becoming very familiar with the very stonework of the place he guards. He has made a vow to protect the city the only way he knows how. He became a spy. He reveals his name to us as Circle Breaker. That's a cool spy name, by the way. Yeah, I dig that. Both he and Orr are awaiting a third person. Orr is complaining about the third person's tardiness. Or and the unnamed third party would usually, on these occasions, walk and talk, and by the time they returned, Circle Breaker would be on his way to deliver his message per his instructions. Circle Breaker is contemplating the hope of surviving the civil war he feels the city is about to plunge into, never mind the Malazan threat on the horizon. One thing I really appreciate, I think we just, uh, this kind of restoked my interest when we mentioned Dune earlier, was that all that palace intrigue stuff, a lot of times that in books I've read with that, sometimes it doesn't do it justice. I, I like his intrigue on these novels. You know, he builds, again, his layering. Of course, it comes from him being archaeologist, whatever. Anthropologist, he layers it up on the layer, but it makes great sense, and I love how he builds his intrigue. It's very, it's intriguing. So, <laughs> Yeah, the councilmen or nobles or priests or whatever person that's involved in this intrigue, he does a good job of having villains. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, kind of mixed in with with this, like these really ruthless individuals that will stop at nothing to get what they want. The scene changes to High Alchemist Baruch as he is reading a parchment note that is the latest delivered from a series over the past year. Quick summary of the description of Baruch. He has a deceptively sleepy gaze. He has plump hands. When he sits in his chair, he's moving his bulk around. And it's odd that I never pictured him as heavyset before. And I guess I kind of glossed over the detail or I simply forgot about it. See, I think I'm like you. I tend to gloss over a lot of things that are, it's, it's great to come around, like you said, um, and look deeper because these are things I didn't think about either. And I'm also assuming that this is the missive from Circle Breaker. Yes. The notes that have been coming have been yeah. those from Circle Breaker. Yes. Wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. Recognizing the pattern from the delivery of the missive, Baruch has dispatched messengers into the city. The contents of the note demanded action, and Baruch was one of the few in the city capable of acting on it. The note explains that Orr had met with another councilman. The note reads, quote, Councilman Turban Orr walks in the garden with Councilman Fetter. I remain known only as Circle Breaker, a servant of the eel whose interests <laughs> coincide with your own, end quote. Baruch feels the temptation to use sorcery to find out the identity of Circle Breaker, though not the eel. The eel seems unfindable. <laughs> Baruch thinks that he will continue to honor Circle Breaker's identity, though Circle Breaker knows more about Baruch than Baruch knows of him. Additionally, Baruch thinks there is a possible gathering of ascendants, and that such a gathering is a fell thing. It is becoming increasingly difficult to move in the defense of the city without being seen. He wonders if the eel is using him, and oddly isn't that concerned about the possibility due to the quality of the information that had been sent to him already. And I like how we learn in these books about these gathering of ascendants. <laughs> these convergences are great, dude. Most certainly, 
It was mentioned earlier in the book when Tattersall was speaking with the bridge burners that she is also concerned about gods entering the fray and drawing others. Yeah. Yeah, it's, mm-hmm. it's, yeah, it's, 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 as we'll find out, things get hairy when that happens. <laughs> yeah, power draws power. Yes, it does. Baruch casts a cantrip, causing the missive to disappear and join the other missives sent by Circlebreaker in a safe place. He then hears a knocking at his window. This should be impossible due to the sheer volume of magical wards that are in place guarding the estate. He magically opens the shutters and can see Crone sitting outside his window. Crone <laughs> inspects him with one eye and then the other. And that, that does a good job of displaying the bird-like nature. Yeah, the great raven. Yeah, they're huge. They're like condors. We talked about them in another episode. They had like, what, 12 or 16-foot wingspans? Yeah, I want to say it was like 15, 12 to 15 or something like that. Yeah. So, yeah, these are big fellas. But yeah, it does, they're very, they are bird-like, but they are not. They're sentient, though. My parents have parrots. And so okay. watching birds, they do that thing because their eyes are on the side of their head, right? Where they, they oh, yeah. inspect you with one eye and then they'll flip to the other side. And it just really invokes that imagery. It for does. Me. A it very really does. You know, bird-like description. Crone pushes against the window with her ridged chest, causing the pain to bulge and then shatter. Baruch raises his warn and Crone says, don't waste your breath. She notes that Baruch has called his guards and that he won't need them, then asks if he has any food. <laughs> Let me invite myself in and ask for food after I just breach your defenses. Great. That's oh, too funny, man. I love her. She's a, she's a character. Yeah, and then the fact that she knows that he called for his guards yeah. through magic, that's pretty impressive. Well, also that just don't even, don't even try and it's not, don't even try to, to level any power at me. Because basically, yeah. she's just going to eat it. <laughs> yeah, yes. It's like, I live for that stuff. Bring it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Baruch explains he is not in the habit of inviting great ravens into his home, but relaxes, dismissing the guards, and he has some food brought for Crone. It's the leavings of supper. <laughs> Baruch inquires who has sent her, and at Crone's suggestion, pours himself a goblet of wine to calm himself. <laughs> Crone tells Baruch, the Lord of Moon's Spawn. Mm. This causes Baruch to pause in pouring the wine. His heart begins racing. He says, I see. Baruch wants to know what Rake would possibly want with a peaceful alchemist. Crone notes how nervous Baruch is and tells him to calm down, then informs him that Rake would like to come and meet with him within the hour. Crone is to wait and answer. You know, at this, we're referring to him as Rake because we know it's Rake, but I think yeah. it's not revealed until Rake actually shows up yeah. what his name is. That's that's true. We've been told at the Battle of Pale that the Lord of Moon Spawn is Rake. Right. In the context so, of this conversation, I'm saying Rake, but Baruch yeah, it's, does it's, not yeah. explicitly oh, know it's true. Rake at this time. Yeah, that's true. I hadn't thought about that. <laughs> Crone is to await an answer if the answer is short in coming. She says she has other business to attend to. And then explains that, quote, I'm more than a simple message bearer. Those who know wisdom when they hear it hold me dear. I am Crone, eldest of the moon's great ravens, whose eyes have looked upon a hundred thousand years of human folly. Hence my tattered coat and broken beak as evidence of your indiscriminate destruction. I am but a winged witness to your eternal madness, end Mm. quote. Hundred thousand years. That's a great introduction. Hundred thousand. Another one of yeah. these ancient, ancient, ancient beings. It's very impressive. And the fact that, that she's doing messenger for Anamander Rake. Right. Dude. <laughs> <laughs> Baruch tells her she is more than just a witness. The great ravens feasted well outside the walls of Pale. Crone retorts that the great ravens weren't the first to feast on flesh and blood. 
the word Sting Baruch, and he mutters a spell that repairs his window, kind of as he's mulling over what she said. Right. Baruch asks Crone if her lord will easily disdain my wards, as you did. (laughs) Crone assures Baruch that her lord is possessed of honor and courtesy and asks if she should call him. Baruch tells her to do so. An avenue will be provided for Rake's passage. There is a knock at the door. Rold, Baruch's personal servant, enters and explains that someone is here to speak with Baruch. Crone tells Baruch the visitor is a mundane visitor whose thoughts are thick with greed and treachery. (laughs) There is a demon on his shoulder named Ambition. I love that description. Baruch asks Rold who the visitor is and is informed it's Councilman Turban Orr. Crone tells Baruch that she wishes to stay here for this discussion if you would seek my counsel. Baruch says, please stay, and yes, I would. Crone tells Baruch she will appear as no more than a pet dog to Turban Orr. Baruch finds he's beginning to like the mangy old witch of a bird. Now, one thing I, I do appreciate about these books, and this is the only books I've ever seen that have done this, have listed the, the, the dramatis persona, you know, the, the cast of characters. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we know, we know from that that Baruch is a member of this cabal, you know, whatever this cabal is. Cabal is. <laughs> the Torud Cabal. Yeah, I like it. We are taken to another estate. What is this, location three for the evening? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's jumping around. A man named Ralik Nam is on the wall outside this estate. Love Ralik Nam. Well, I'll mention it later. Yeah, we'll get back into it. Yep. He can see two figures through curtains. He has been here five nights in a row watching the Lady Simtal. She has had a new man at her house every night that Ralik Nam has been watching her. Two of the lovers are city councilmen. Ralik sees a man come onto the balcony. His name is Councilman Lim. Ralik readies a crossbow with a poisoned quarrel. Ralik sees Lady Simtal come onto the balcony to join the councilman. Lady Simtal is apparently a stunningly beautiful woman, and Ralik thinks that it's no wonder there's no shortage of lovers for that one. He hears the continuation of a conversation that had begun inside. Lady Simtal asks, Why the alchemist? He's just a fat old man smelling of sulfur and brimstone, hardly suggestive of political power. Councilman Lim says, Your naivete is a charm, lady, a charm. <laughs> lady Simtal steps back and crosses her arms. She sharply says, Educate me then. She's a little bit intimidating. Yeah. Lim explains all that is a facade. Lim has sources among the majory. It appears that most of the mages in the city fear the alchemist, and they name him by a title that alone suggests a secret cabal of some sort. He concludes that a gathering of sorcerers is a fell thing. (laughs) Ralik is becoming agitated listening to these two talk about politics. He thinks to himself, quote, the bitch spreads her legs to the council, offering a vice few can ignore, end quote. Ralik is here to kill, not a guild contract. This is a personal vendetta. He observes that Simtal has been gathering power to herself, and he seems to think he knows why. Quote, the ghosts of betrayal would not leave her alone, end quote. Ralik reminds himself to be patient. Simtal has spent two years lifting off stolen riches. The crime she had committed had not been against Ralik, but unlike her victim, Ralik had no pride to halt vengeance. Again, he reminds himself to be patient as he sights down his crossbow. The reward is but moments away. We're taken back to Baruch's estate. Turban Orr has entered Baruch's office and comments on Baruch's fine-looking hound. (laughs) 
<laughs> this is, of course, Crone wrapped in an illusion. Or sits down when invited by Baruch and pats Crone on the head. <laughs> Baruch looks away in an attempt to avoid laughter. And this image really got me good. This 100,000-year-old being is being petted like a simple dog. And she takes it well. Yes, she does. Yes, she does. I'm really impressed with her with her being that patient. <laughs> After some small talk, Orr gets down to business. Orr talks about the fact that the council's about to vote on a proclamation of neutrality to avoid war with the Malazan Empire. Orr is seeking the support of Darujistan's sorcerers. Crone mutters to Baruch that Orr now hunts in earnest. Orr looks at the dog... <laughs> <laughs> Baruch explains the dog has a bad leg and for Or to pay it no mind. <laughs> I, I love how strong Crone is. You know, she's just chilling out, eating and listening to this conversation. She's even given the advice who is no, to Baruch, and he's no slouch in the brains department either. And mm-hmm. all the while, Turban Ors only sees a dog and appears to be old and whining due to age. <laughs> yeah, I really like how she's over here talking smack about Or the whole time, I and it just it. sounds like a whining dog. <laughs> It's so funny. It's really great. It's got to be hard for Orr to sit there with a straight face. I'm not Orr, but for Baruch to sit there with mm-hmm. a straight face. Yeah. Baruch says the sorcerers in this town, for the most part, are a spiteful, rabid collection of humanity. <laughs> Tell us how you feel. Some are so lost in research that they won't be bothered by anything. Orr points out that the council is aware of Baruch's eminence among the city's mages. Baruch's word alone would bring others. Baruch says that even if this were true... What possible reason would I support such a willfully ignorant position as yours? A proclamation of neutrality? Might as well whistle against the wind, Councilman. What purpose would it serve? I love it, dude. Tell us how you really feel, Baruch. It's like, that's, that's, that's a pretty stiff insult, isn't it? Yeah. It, it's definitely drawing a clear line, and it's very bold. Just yeah. outright putting that position out there. Well, it also kind of shows which way the, where the power is in this town. It's like there's a council, but apparently the council has to come and kiss these guys' ring. Yeah. I'm thinking that's how it kind of feels with him being there. Well. Maybe not. He just, Maybe he just wants to win him. Yeah, They have a suspicion that he's kind of in power, but I think the councilmen are so arrogant that they really think that they're running things, but really behind yeah. the scenes, the alchemists are making it happen. It's the guy behind the guy. Behind the guy. That's who, that's, who, that's who these guys are. Well said. Well said. Or tries to play this off and asks Baruch if he wished to share the same fate as the Wizards of Pale. Or reveals that the Wizards of Pale were assassinated by an Empire Claw. Baruch tells Or his information contradicts Baruch's, then instantly regrets displaying he has access to more information. Crone says to Baruch that they are both wrong. Or says, perhaps it might profit us both to share our information. Baruch says, quote, unlikely. Throwing the threat of empire at me implies what? That if the proclamation is voted down, the city sorcerers will all die at the empire's hand. But if it wins, you're free to opening the gates to the Malazans in peaceful coexistence. And in such a scenario, the city's majory lives on, end quote. You know, a funny thing for me here is that when I hear especially Turban Orr speak, I always think of the of the Audible books, and Ralph Lizard does this kind of James Mason esque kind of in part with perhaps it's my profitless birth to share our information. That's, like, <laughs> that's all I could ever hear is that turban or like like what is with the James mm. Mason dude? I don't know how he does it. The choice he makes for Kalam's voice doesn't suit me. Yeah, it's very high pitched, 
And yeah. I see him, he's this big, burly, hey, strong... Hey, he's a big bear of a man. Yeah, he's a like bear a of a man. You would expect a deep voice, almost like... Yeah, no, a deep voice. <laughs> okay, so what is that actor's name? Uh, Dunk Michael... Oh, Michael Duncan. Clark, Michael D- Clark Duncan. Michael Clark Duncan, yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's the voice that I hear coming from Colombia. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I get you. Yeah. I agree. I agree. <laughs> this deep rumble from this bear of a man, you know, and yeah. not <laughs> this high pitched. Yeah. This little squeaky thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Baruch continues Neutrality, how you've managed to twist that word. Your proclamation serves the first step towards total annexation, Councilman. Fortunate for you that I cast no weight, no vote, no influence. Roald will see you out. <laughs> Just wow. Get out. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I've had enough of you. Or is furious. He says the council could remove any considerations for the majory. Crone tells Baruch that Or is acting too bold and that Baruch should push Or to see what else he will reveal. Baruch says, One may only hope that your vote fails to win the day. Or reveals that they have reached a majority this very night by one vote. <laughs> Crone mockingly says, it may not be good to say such things on this night of all nights. Wow. She thinks she hears a coin spinning in the distance. And she can detect a tremble of power coming from somewhere in the city, and it causes her to shiver. Wow. Back to Ralik Nam. Ralik Nam is there to kill Lady Simtal. No more indolence for her. The end of luxuries comes this night. The two figures on the balcony move to walk inside. All of a sudden, a whirring, spinning sound fills Ralik's head. Suddenly, his plan is shifted into something more elaborate. Hmm. All this had happened between breaths. Ralik was here initially to kill Lady Simtal for a past wrong. He changes his target and kills Councilman Lim. Lady Simtal screams and the guards begin running to her. Ralik wastes no time and leaves the scene in a most assassin-like maneuver. He rolls off this shelf that he's on and lands cat-like in an alley and just kind of... Ralik, man. I love yeah. that guy. Ralik's decided that there will be no quick demise for Lady Simtal. This will be fun. Uh-oh. <laughs> she will have a difficult time explaining a dead councilman on her bedroom balcony. Lim's wife would have something to say about this. He also thinks that it won't be easy. Lady Simtal is no slouch in the intrigue game. I just love how, how it just falls into his lap like that. You know, I'm assuming the, the spinning coin is always representative of, of a pawn, I'm assuming. So was he nudged that way he was just totally yeah. hardly it's like here's a new plan for you buddy and it's like <laughs> he was his mind was incepted yeah with a yeah, I mean, to be to be fair the idea is is really good you know instead it's of good, just outright not, killing it's, it's, her it's yeah. definitely a much better outcome it fed on what he already had and kind of used his in a more elaborate you know it's just like you know you would have thought of this if you give enough time mm-hmm. <laughs> You know, when I say it's a better outcome, a lot of people have to die to get to that outcome. So I don't True. know if it's necessarily a better outcome. It's, it's, I'll tell you what, it shortly makes for a dadgum good story. That's for it sure. It does. <laughs> it's very entertaining. I'll tell you that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We get this awesome series because of that nudge. Yeah. Yeah. Got the, got the pull on this one. <laughs> yep. Yep. Reminder, the pull is pulling someone back from the cliff edge. Yes. Pushing is pushing them over the cliff edge. So pull is good luck. We're going to keep hammering down on that concept. (laughs) As Ralik leaves, he starts to form a plan to take care of Lady Simtal. 
As he makes his way to the Phoenix Inn, he is thinking, There will be more blood, but in the end she'll fall, and with that fall, an old friend will rise. As Ralik approaches the inn, a figure reveals himself to Ralik and motions for Ralik to follow. The new arrival is Ralik's clan leader, Ocelot. Another good name. Yep. How does he come up with all these names, man? I don't know, man. And he's got hundreds of them, dude. And yeah. they're all great. <laughs> Ocelot tells Ralik that his vendetta probably saved his life tonight. He asks Ralik if he has heard anything tonight, and Ralik says he's heard nothing. Ocelot explains that a war has begun on the rooftops. Someone is killing us. We lost five roamers in less than an hour, meaning there is more than one killer out there. Ocelot tells Ralik, we lost that bull of a man, Talo Krafar, and a clan leader. At this news, Ralik says, they must be good. Ocelot says, all their eyewitnesses are dead. The killers don't make mistakes. Ralik says, everyone makes mistakes. And asks if Orkin has gone out. This mindset right here is all you need to know about Ralik. Yeah. Ocelot is yeah. pissing his pants. He's so terrified. And Ralik isn't worried at all. Nope. He's awesome. Yeah, Ralik, he is. Yeah. Ralik is, you know, it's like we have our fa- There's, I guess it's Kalam and also Ralik are the greatest. Are they the best assassins in this series? If not, they're the first introduced ones. I mean. I can't say Kalam more. Kalam definitely is. No, I can't say more. Ocelot says Vorkin's too busy recalling the clans. After some discussion, it is revealed that this is probably not a coup attempt in the clan. Ralik's guess is an empire claw. Ocelot looks reluctant, but agrees and asks Ralik why they would go after the guild. Ralik asks if Ocelot is asking him to guess the empire's intentions. <laughs> Ocelot says he came to Ralik as a favor. Ralik is so tied up in his vendetta that the guild has no obligation to offer Ralik protection. Ralik repeats a favor and laughs. He moves to leave. Ocelot steps in his way and explains to Ralik that the clan has set a trap. Ocelot tells Ralik to go inside the Phoenix Inn and make yourself visible and leave no doubt as to what you do for a living. <laughs> Ralik doesn't like the idea of being bait, but is told to do it anyway. Yep. This is a great setting up chapter two. A lot of stuff's going in motion. A lot of heavy stuff in motion here. All the players are being introduced for Darujistan right now, right? And there's some great, I I love, like I said, I've always loved the Phoenix Inn regulars. They're great. They're, they're as, they're as lovable as the bridge burners in their own, in their own madcap way. Yeah. Back to Brooks estate. Crone mentions that there is a shaping in the night after turban or leaves. Baruch also felt the disturbance. Crone announces that her master is here and she has other tasks at hand. Baruch opens the window with a spell. As Crone exits, she tells Baruch, I see 12 ships riding a deep harbor. 11 stand tall in flames. Baruch is surprised. He had not anticipated a prophecy. Baruch asks, And the 12th? Crone says, On the wind, a hailstorm of sparks fill the night sky. I see them spinning. Spinning about the last vessel. Still spinning. And with that, Crone leaves. That's a hell of an image right there. Yeah, it is. Man, this is why Erickson is so great. This stuff is imprinted on me. It's easy to see. He's one of the most visual writers, for me at least. Mm -hmm. Baruch turns and looks at a map he has been working on. The map shows 11 other once free cities that now bore the Empire flag. Only Darujistan remained, the 12th. All of a sudden, the walls in Baruch's study groan as if an enormous amount of pressure is suddenly built up in Baruch's estate. The pressure is so intense that it is giving Baruch a headache. It is also making the lights dim and then they go out. 
The blood pounds in his head. In the dark, Baruch can hear cracks sweeping down his walls. Dude, remind me not to invite the right to dinner. Sounds like he brings foundation problems with him. Dude, you would invite him over, even with the foundation oh, problems. Oh, Dude, to meet someone Please. like this? Come on. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> I agree. I love Rake. Rake is, this is some great stuff here. I, get, I, I just love this whole scene. As quick as the pressure built up, it goes away. A voice greets Baruch out of the darkness. Greetings, High Alchemist. I am the Lord of Moonspawn. Baruch says the title is unnecessary, and to simply call him Baruch. Rake is at home in the darkness and asks if this will be a problem for Baruch. Baruch casts a spell to let himself see a little in the dark. Everything has a blue glow to it. Is that kind of like a thermal vision? It seems so. It says that Rake emanates... What is the exact wording? As little heat as the room's inanimate objects, right? So it's almost like some type of thermal vision. Yeah, and I'm assuming also because we know more about his warren is more tied to... It's dark, but I'm assuming that his dark is apparently also very cold. Yes. Where Rake is from, so... or his Mm -hmm. yeah. Baruch is able to see that Rake is a tist andy. Rake introduces himself and says the nearest way for humans to pronounce his name is Anamander Rake. Baruch is able to put together that the Tist Endi are fighting the Empire to the north, commanded by a savage beast of a man named Caladan Brood. They had allied with the Crimson Guard, and together the two forces were decimating the Malazans. So there were Tist Endi and Moonspawn, and the man standing before him was their lord. This is the first time Baruch has ever seen a Tist Endi. Baruch is fascinated by Rake's eyes. Quote, one moment, a deep hue of amber, cat-like and unnerving. The next, gray and banded, like a snake's, a fell rainbow of colors to match any mood. He wondered if they were capable of lying, end quote. Brooks Library contains copies of a tome entitled Gothos Folly, ancient jag hut writings several millennia old. The Tist and are mentioned in an aura of fear. Gothos, a Jaghut wizard who had descended the deepest warrens of elder magic, had praised the gods of the time that the Tist Andy were so few in number. Wow. That says something right there when the Jaghut are kind of like, woo. <laughs> Thank goodness there's not more of these fellas. Yeah. There's very little context that we can give you right now, but yeah. the, the Jaghut are powerful, very powerful. Yeah. And for them to be afraid of the Tistandi says a lot. Yeah. We'll meet some Jaghut at before the end of the book. Mm-hmm. Correct. So, you will be introduced to some. <laughs> Apparently, the Tistandi race have dwindled since then. A brief description of Anamander Rake follows. He has jet black skin. Okay, so I like that. What's funny with the drow is that this concept of the dark elves to me is it's still... I, I, I can't say new, but it's still kind of new to me. I didn't I didn't have a lot of encounters with Drow. Mm. I did him I did it I did it on an old D and D game for my old I had a computer in the two eighty six days. Do you remember those two eighty six computers? My first computer was a three eighty six. Three eighty six, okay. Two eighty six days. SSI. No, I'm sorry, four eighty six. It was a four eighty six. Holy smokes, yeah, okay. Yeah. So yeah, I was I was back a couple generations. It was a the SSI did four games. From pools of darkness to pools, uh, pools of light to pools, pools of radiance to pools of darkness, and they were turn-based D and D modules, and you carried your characters through all of them. But and but in some offshoot stuff that I did not know about, where they started introducing different classes that you seem to know more about the mixed classes, and and there's a lot of stuff that's happened in years I never really played much since the '90s. <laughs> so I know a lot has changed 
in years, uh, more clarification, I'm assuming, too, with D&D. But the drow, drow are dark elves. They're, I'm assuming they're just like regular elves, but just because I, I remember encountering them at one point. So Spider you've never read the Drist Oerden books? No. Uh-uh. Oh, okay. Yeah, don't get me started on this. Um, okay, okay. So... <laughs> those take place i forget what the author's name is but well drist himself is a drow and the drow are evil lawful evil i believe but drist is good so he's kind of an outcast amongst his own people i think you gave that to me because you and i have that book i have a book of uh, something you gave me yeah i think i I was reading those when we were working together okay and you get you gave me the collection of it to read and i haven't read i haven't read them yet sorry oh okay yeah. Oh, I was wondering where those books went. Cool. All right. So at least yeah. at least you got them. It, was, awesome. it, resides, it resides with me. You gave it to me. It's like, dude, I had a bunch of those books. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay. Good. Uh, I mean, they're. Okay. I would say they are kind of simple. Like they're good early right. entry level books. They do not have the complexity at all of Erickson's work, but right. the overall story is pretty entertaining. Well, the thing that gets me is like. Uh, and I, I'm going to go ahead and jump. Go ahead and cut to the next section, and then I'll I'll, I'll talk about because there's some things I want to talk about. Rake reminding me of somebody. All right. Continuing with this description, he has jet black skin, but he has silver hair. I, I believe they normally have white hair, but Rake's is silver specifically. Yeah. He stands close to seven feet tall. His features are sharp, as if cut from onyx. They have a slight upward tilt to the large vertical pupiled eyes. Now, the fact that he's nearly seven feet tall, I, I think he's, you know, like probably about LeBron James size, right? Like six right. foot nine or something like that. Yeah. And he has a large two handed sword at his back. It's silver dragon skull pommel and an archaic cross hilt are jutting from a wooden scabbard fully six and a half feet long. Love it. From the weapon bleeds power, staining the air like black ink in a pool of water. I'm six feet tall. This this sword yeah. is six inches taller I'm, than I'm I am. Six four, I mean, I'm six four. And yeah. It's like, yeah, it's like okay. So yeah, it's just it's it's, it's two inches taller, taller than, than you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Still taller than me. That's crazy, man. Yeah. You know, I'm reminded of like these Final Fantasy games, which I did like to play back in Final Fantasy VII, mm-hmm. where these guys carry these swords that are just, you know, you know what I'm talking about. Those yeah. Ridiculous Japanese swords that are in anime shows. I love them. I love yeah, them. like but Sephiroth's sword, sword is probably this long. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. And, uh, but I, this is where I get my, down below I have a picture of Elric. And I'll mention Elric later again, but the sword Stormbringer is, is also from, El, from Elric is a character who I see as Rake. Except that he is—he was pale. He's a—he's—he's—he is supposed to be pale anyhow. But I imagine in this jet-skinned version. So I already have an image of Rake, and that's my image of Rake right there. Okay. But with a larger sword, because Dragnapur is more impressive. And it's but I just I, I, but that's kind of how I think he looks. But with jet black skin though. Mm-hmm. So okay. I, I love I love, I love but I love. The character of Rake, because I feel like it's very much sta- I feel like it's very much an homage in certain ways. I think the sword is for sure, because I've seen magic swords before, but the soul drinking ones that was the first time I read that stuff was been Michael Moorcock's Elric series, because mm-hmm. he was weak without his sword. He has to kill people, and he gets in this berserker frenzy because the blade is actually an entity; it's a demon, mm. and so friends of his die on his blade in berserker frenzy mode. <laughs> That's very, pretty messed up. 
It's pretty messed up, dude. Yeah. And he consumes his friend's souls, but it feeds him because he's he's weak. He's like a, he's he's sustained by sorcery, so the so this helps him. So <laughs> his soul drinking blade is a curse. Yeah, that's a pretty dark existence right there. Yeah, it is. It's brutal. Mm-hmm. He does have that same kind of pathos in a way, though. He's not really friendly, but I understand him because it's like he kills a bunch of his friends on accident. It's like whoops, <laughs> sorry. And these people join. You're him still talking about well. Elric. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But he has that kind of pathos. There's there's a there's an ancient and an antiquity. There was something in there. I feel that way about Rake. Mm-hmm. And we'll be, we'll of course. But this is foreshadowing. I shouldn't be mentioning that. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> when Baruch's eyes fall to Rake's sword, he reels. Yeah. As Baruch looks, he has an impression of a vast darkness yawning before him, cold as the heart of a glacier, from which came the stench of antiquity and a faint groaning sound. And knowing what I know, that makes my hair stand up. Yeah. We'll get to that, fortunately, later in this book. Yes. <laughs> yeah, because yes. it's killing me not being able to talk about a lot of this stuff right now. I know it. I know it. Yeah. As Rake and Baruch begin to talk, Rake asks, was Crone her usual melodramatic self? <laughs> <laughs> Baruch thinks about how great power shapes different souls differently and is struck by Rake's absolute mastery of his power. That alone engendered awe. Such control was, well, inhuman. Baruch reflects that Rake is not twisted by his enormous power. Rake instead shapes his power. Rake mentions, seemingly out of the blue, that, quote, she threw everything she had at me, and even then she couldn't bring me down, end quote. Baruch at first doesn't know who she is, then realizes Rake is speaking of the Empress. Baruch says, yes, you were driven back, battered and beaten. I can feel your power, Anamanda Rake. It pulses from you in waves. So I must ask, how is it you were defeated? I know something of the Empire's high mage Tashrin. He has power, but it's no match to yours. So again, I ask how. Rake explains that Moonspawn is mostly filled with children, priests, and three elderly, exceedingly bookish warlocks. Now, what I found interesting was he mentions warlocks. So... Mm-hmm. We have mages, sorcerers, warlocks. So basically every derivation of spellcaster yeah, <laughs> is mentioned so. in these books, which yes. I kind of like that. I do. Just kind of all-encompassing. War, 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 <laughs> warlock to me is very specific, uh, you know, to me. It's a male practitioner. Okay. You know, that, that's the only difference I have. It's, it's like, But you're right, listing all the different kinds of... I love it. I'm like you. <laughs> three exceedingly bookish warlocks. <laughs> so three old three old guys that don't want to do anything but read books. But on that point, though, the Baruch himself is not referred to as a warlock. He's no. either a sorcerer or a mage. I believe yeah, they refer to him interchangeably as that, right? Yeah, pretty much. I feel that you could call these guys the same thing. If they're warlocks, they're, I'm, assuming, I'm assuming a magic user cast to them. Mm-hmm. They know what's what. Baruch is shocked to learn that there is a city inside Moonspawn. Rake explains that he expended too much power trying to defend his people inside Moonspawn. Further, he says that Tayshrin didn't give a damn about the people around him. Rake thought to dissuade him, make the price too high. He retreated to save the home of his people. Baruch mentions leaving Pale to fall. And then immediately shuts up because he is shocked at himself for verbalizing this. Rake explains that my presence alone has been keeping the Empire at bay for almost two years. Yeah, and that goes back to a point mentioned earlier about that. What was what was being used to keep the Empire at bay for two years? Rake. Correct. I mean, one guy. Mm-hmm. Sorry, not one. Just his not presence, a, he, right? He's an mm-hmm. ascendant, I guess. Would you? Is that what you would? Is he an ascendant? 
Yes, absolutely. Or is he, or is he beyond? Okay. So well, he is the ascend, isn't he the ascendant of ascendants, basically? Yeah, I would say he's an ascendant. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Brug asks Rake why he has requested this meeting with him. Rake says he is here to form an alliance. Brug asks, with me, personally? <laughs> Rake says, no games, please, and explains that he is no fool. He is aware that the council actually doesn't control Darujistan. Rake knows that Baruch is in a cabal and surmises that the cabal is actually the real ruler of Darujistan. Rake also says, I'll tell you this. For the Empress, your city is the lone pearl on this continent of mud. She wants it, and what she wants, she usually gets. Mm. <laughs> Baruch reminds Rake that Rake had formed an alliance with the Wizards of Pale. And when the battle was begun in earnest, your first thought was not for the alliance you made with the city, but for the well-being of your moon. Rake wants to know who told Baruch this. Baruch explains that some of the Wizards of Pale escaped and are here in Darujistan. Rake's eyes turn black as he hears this. He asks, they're in the city? I have to ask another question. I, I, I have it on the bottom for the, I'm, I'm just going to add it to every chapter we do. Questions for Steve. Okay. <laughs> I hope to know him as Steve. <laughs> <laughs> but is this specifically a shout out to the arrow? Because there's a group of, they're, they're chaos worshipers called the Wizards of Pantang. Mm-hmm. And I think of the Wizards of Pale. I'm like, I love it. I love that stuff. I don't know why I see a lot. It's all cool. I like both. It, it doesn't matter if it's a shadow or not. I just think it's great. We have okay. heads full of this weird fantasy stuff, and how, how I see the similarities between them is great. Okay. Brooke asks why, <laughs> because Rake <laughs> asks whether they're in the city. Yes. Rake says, I want their heads. Mm. An icy hand grips Baruch's <laughs> heart, and again he asks why. The words coming out in a gasp. Rake explains that when words spread of an empire claw in pale, the wizards fled. Before the claw was in fact in pale, Rake had killed them all. But the word of the claw being in pale was enough to make the wizards panic and flee. Rake says that if the wizards had stayed, the battle would have gone the other way. And that Tashrin, it seemed, was preoccupied with other imperatives. He'd saturated his position, a hilltop, with defensive wards. Then he unleashed demons, not against me, but against some of his companions. What is this? That's a juicy bit of confirmation right there. Yes, it is. That's nasty. Right. Mm-hmm. Rake explains that he wasted power taking out the demons to minimize the loss of life. I like how we start to see Rake is not the villain that we have. Well, even though the story was early, but they, at the beginning, they kind of have him painted in a way that you might think this guy's a villain because he's yeah. opposing a group of folks we care about. Mm-hmm. But he's not. They're just following orders. <laughs> you see, from his perspective, he was doing the right thing, the honorable yes. thing. Yes. Mm-hmm. He was trying to protect yeah. the people in the city. And try to protect yeah. the, he's trying to protect the soldiers, even. Right. The enemy soldiers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The Molasses yeah. Troll soldiers. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Rake states that Moonspawn was minutes from being destroyed, so he retreated and pursued the escaping wizards here to Darujistan. He has tracked down all but two of the wizards of Pale. Baruch wants to know how Rake killed the wizards. Rake explains that he used his sword on the wizards he caught. Baruch ensures that he will speak with the Cabal and will get an answer to Rake about the Alliance. Baruch asks Rake if he got the two wizards alive, would Rake use his sword on them? Right. Rake confirms he will use his sword. I love that Baruch knows these guys now have it coming to him, but he's still so terrified of Rake's sword that he'd rather have the wizards killed and their heads delivered to prevent such an awful fate from being killed by that sword. 
Yep. It's an act of mercy. Yeah, it is. And Baruch tells Rake, I'll get their heads <laughs> yeah. for you. As Rake exits, he laughs harshly at Baruch, saying, there's too much mercy in your heart, Alchemist. Oh, that's too funny. What a character he is, man. Yes. Yeah. I, I can't Rake. wait to, to dig more into the stuff that he does, because yeah. you just get to know him so much better. Well, some ways you see him more, but you don't yeah. really. He's, he's very enigmatic. Yeah. Well, maybe that's part of the allure of him. It, that probably is. It's yeah. not like Corsa. <laughs> You don't want to see that guy coming, dude. It's like, uh oh. <laughs> there goes the insurance rate. <laughs> Back to the Phoenix Inn. It's almost dawn. Four men are sitting at a table. One is asleep with his face in a puddle of stale beer. The others are playing cards. Two of them red eyed with exhaustion while the third studied his cards and spoke. <laughs> Kruppa is talking. As he always insists on doing. Yes. Kruppa is spinning a tale about saving Ralik Nam's life. Apparently, Ralik was under attack by six men and suffered 100 knife wounds. Kruppa intervened with a fire spell and turned the six men into ash. Marilio, which he's another Phoenix in regular, turns to Crocus and asks, Is this possible for a turn to last as long as Kruppa's? Crocus remarks that he doesn't care. It's safe in here. He's preoccupied with almost getting killed. Yeah. <laughs> That'll get to you. <laughs> Kruppa interrupts. Assassin's Wars Bosch. Kruppa <laughs> remains entirely unconvinced. He points out that Ralik Nan came in here and talked at length with Marilio, and Ralik was calm as ever. Marilio grimaces and says, Nam gets like that every time he's just killed somebody. Lay down a card, damn it. I have early appointments to attend to. <laughs> Crocus asks what the conversation was about. Marilio shrugs, then glares at Kruppa, waiting for him to finish his turn. Crocus says he saw three assassins on the rooftops this evening, and two of them killed the third, then came after Crocus, even though he's obviously not an assassin. Marilio says he is inclined to believe Crocus. Kruppa says, fools! Kruppa sits at a table of fools. He glances down at the snoring man and says, and Call here is the biggest of them all, but sadly gifted with self-knowledge. Hence his present state, from which many profane truths might be drawn. And Call is another Phoenix in regular. Yes. Usually hammered, but it's... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Kruppa then lays into Marilio saying, Appointments, Marilio? Kruppa didn't think the city's multitude of mistresses awoke so early in the day. After all, what might they see in their mirrors? Kruppa shivers at the thought. He does have some good lines. He does, yeah. Crocus again asks Kruppa to play a card. Kruppa asks, my turn? <laughs> Marilio dryly quips, seems self-knowledge doesn't extend to whose turn it is. <laughs> Ralik Nam enters the scene from upstairs. He has slept and freshened up for the day. He, he's got his hair freshly braided and he's yep. shaved and looking all like he's Spiffy. well rested. And dressing like an assassin, apparently. Remember, because he wanted to look like it, too. He's got to look oh, yeah. the part. He walks up to the table and lifts Call's head out of the puddle of beer and inspects him, then gently sets his head back down. He pulls up a chair and sits down, asking if it's the same card game from last night. Kruppa replies it is, and assures Ralik Nam that he has the remaining players' backs against the wall. <laughs> Kruppa tells Ralik that Crocus speaks endlessly of murder above our heads. Kruppa asks if Ralik has heard anything about this. Ralik shrugs and says, another rumor. This city was built on rumors. If I'm not mistaken, this is an important point. Maybe not in this episode. 
mm-hmm. the, the rumor thing. I can't remember the rumor born. It seems to ring a bell, but I can't place it off the top of my head. I can't either. It has to do with all. It's it just reeks of something going on in Registan, but I can't remember what it is. Okay, yeah, make a mental all. note. Copy. Check. Crocus scowls to himself and again wonders what Marilio and Ralic had been talking about the previous night. This is not unusual itself. It usually involved Kruppa at the center of it. Right. Kruppa calls to Salty and asks if she's awake. She responds from behind the counter. She apparently sleeps <laughs> back there. And that's a tough life right there. I wonder yeah. when she gets to sleep. She just spent the whole night serving everybody. Now she's got to yeah. get up. Yeah. Marilio decides it's time to go and get cleaned up. As for the game, he surrenders, having come to the conclusion that Kruppa will never play his cards, and thus the game will never end. Ralic and Marilio lock gazes, and Marilio nods slightly to Ralic. Crocus sees this interchange. Kruppa asks if Crocus is quitting too. Crocus quits the game, and Kruppa claims that he still remains undefeated. So Kruppa's power is the power to simply outweigh anyone in the game to win, which is not a bad thing, but how do you feel about that? <laughs> Outlasting your opponent is one of the critical components of success in life. Most That's people true. just quit. That's very true. So, yeah, there you go. A lot of the Tenacious. winners just stick it out. Yeah, yeah. having tenacity. Okay. Crocus thinks that Marilia and Ralic Nam are up to something and thinks back to his encounter on the rooftops with the tall black-clad assassins. Although dangerous, it was kind of exciting. Crocus thinks on his group of friends, call Kruppa, Marilio, and Ralic Nam. A drunkard, an obese mage of dubious abilities, a dandified fob, and a killer. They are his best friends. <laughs> yep. His parents died when he was young, and his uncle Mamet had raised him. Mamet had done the best he could to raise Crocus, but Crocus had found the streets shadows and moonless nights on rooftops far more exciting than his uncle's moldy books. But now Crocus feels alone. Crocus thinks Kruppa's mask of blissful idiocy never dropped, not for an instant all through the years he had known Kruppa. It is revealed that Crocus has apprenticed under Kruppa in the art of thievery. Call is said to be relentlessly avoiding sobriety for reasons <laughs> unknown to Crocus. Crocus thinks Call had once been something more. Yeah. Now Ralic and Marilio had counted Crocus out of some intrigue. Suddenly into his head pops an image of the moonlit limbs of a sleeping maiden. He angrily shakes his head. Salty arrives with breakfast and serves Crocus first. Kruppa is offended and says he is of a mind to cast a thousand horrible spells on rude Salty. Ralic tells him he better not. Kruppa says, of course not. A wizard of my skills would never belittle himself on a mere scullion after all. (laughs) (laughs) Salty turns to him and says, scullion? Then snatches a bread husk that has been fried in butter and slaps it down on Kruppa's head. She says, don't worry. With hair like yours, nobody notice. (laughs) That's a sharp tongue on that one. Well, you got to be if you're going to work in that industry. Y- yes. Kruppa takes the bread off his head and is about to drop it on the floor, then changes his mind, setting the bread on his plate. He says, Kruppa is magnanimous this morning. He smiles and says, Kruppa wishes to begin his meal with some grapes, please. <laughs> and thus ends chapter six. Standout moments. Crone turning into a dog and getting patted on the head by Baruch. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. I love that. I do love that. No, not by Baruch, by Orr. And then Baruch laughing about it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was awesome. That is great. Like I said, I'm going to agree with almost every point. It's all great. It's such a great chapter. Yeah, it was good. Yeah, and Crone in general, I enjoyed her entering the story. You know, I think this is one of the things I've 
this is where you start to see more of Erickson's sense of humor a little bit with some of the Phoenix Inn. And mm-hmm. it feels like, again, this is, you, you get the real feeling from the bridge burners and the Phoenix Inn regulars that these are just regular folks. And they, they he builds a really compelling story for all of these people. They're very, I'm always very satisfied. Not just them though, right? Because no, the patting of the, the crone on the head, you know, I was laughing yes. about that too, right? Oh yeah. Oh, that's true. There's a, there's a yeah. lot of funniness. Yeah. He's got a great sense of humor for sure. Mm-hmm. And, he, and he's able to pass that along and make me laugh, which is, you mm-hmm. know, that doesn't normally happen. I don't normally laugh in books. Yeah. There are some things that do make me laugh, but he makes me laugh on a pretty regular basis. He also makes me cry. Oh yeah. We'll get there. <laughs> yes, we will. We'll get there. I hope I can keep it together when I, <laughs> when I <record. laughs> know it. We'll have a while to prepare ourselves for some of these. I don't know, man. Uh, I still get emotional thinking about some of this stuff. All right. The assassination of Lim and the intro to Relic. That was pretty cool. Like that. Absolutely. I love Relic. He's a fave of mine. And as we've mentioned, man, assassins, baby. You got to love them in this world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And one thing to note with that assassination, there was mention of the poisoned quarrel. Yes. That is one of his signatures, the poison. Yeah. The intro to Animander Rake, everything about that character. Really, I mean, just his entry into the room, that the groaning, the the darkness, you, the pressure. Yeah. You know, it's it's really an incredible intro to him. And then he's soft spoken, yeah. he's polite, but yeah. there's this the power, edge dude. to him. Yeah, the edge to him when he finds out that those wizards are still alive from Pale. Oh, yeah, yeah, and it you gets find real out how strong serious. he was. Yeah, and trying to defend his enemy mm-hmm. from those demons. I mean, dude, what a guy. Then the sword. Absolutely. We don't really get too much into the sword. We get a glimpse. Just by Baruch reeling from looking at it, yeah. but we'll get more into as it. Much as I really want to see about that thing, yeah, but mm-hmm. agreed. Yeah, the verbal banter at the Phoenix Inn. Oh man, that was pretty good too. Yeah, good stuff. <laughs> I know I said he talks too much. This was an example of the stuff I do like about him. But there yeah. are times where he just rambles and rambles and rambles, and it's just like, nah, it's too much. But like stuff like this, I do enjoy. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I just love how how he just keeps adding more and more, and you feel it building. This is, mm-hmm. I think, that's why I like. This point in the book, it's like, especially for people who are just getting started, you know, it's, there's a lot of stuff that goes on, but for some reason, I, every time I do the read through, it's chapter six is kind of where I feel like I get my legs, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's where you start to feel like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of getting a little, this, you know, you're, you're starting to get the feel of it a little bit more folks. I mean, it's things are starting to coagulate a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Come together. We're here to keep the sit. We're here to keep the systems in line. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, cool. Uh, do you have right, any final it, thoughts? No, just a great chapter. Like I said, I just I love I, I, I love doing this with you every week. It's so fun to how we how we get to talk about our favorite book, man. It's amazing. Yeah, thank you. Good job tonight. Great job, Ed. All right, thanks everybody. Have a good night. Thanks. See everybody. you next week. Take care. Peace. We thank you all for joining us today. Again, we really like to thank you for taking the time to be with us, and we've had a really great time talking about the topic today. If you would like to support our show, you can find us at horsefrogproductions.com, where you can find our Patreon link. Depending on the platform you're listening from, it may also be in the episode description. And if you'd like to contact us uh, through email, it's at contact at horsefrogproductions.com.